Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. I'm beginning a very short series for the next four Lord's Days to take a look at how the Gospel writers introduce us to Jesus Christ. Uh, Matthew and Luke, of course, tell us of His birth. Mark begins immediately with His immediate uh, ministry, and John begins with His beginning before time. In the beginning was the Word. And so we'll look at those, and my plan will be, as will often be my plan when I'm preaching morning and evening, to look at a larger section of uh, Scripture, often a chapter in the morning, and then in that same chapter in the evening to focus in. And so you'll see this morning we're looking at the whole of Matthew chapter 1, and then, Lord willing, this evening we'll focus in on verses 20, uh, 21 through the end of the chapter. If you find it useful, I think it's out by the bulletins, the family worship guide that I'm putting together week by week. You're welcome to take that and use it. If you're using other things in your family worship guide, continue to use those. You won't offend me. Before we hear from God in His Word, just a moment to consider the miracle, as we often refer to it as, the miracle of birth. Many of you have given birth. Many of you have observed birth closely. All of you have participated in being birthed. And every birth is not, biblically speaking, a miracle. Some were. We have accounts in the Scripture of Isaac and Joseph and Samuel and John the baptizer. But none were more miraculous more miraculous than Jesus Christ the King. And we, I suspect, at least most of us, if not all of us, are intimately familiar with the birth of the King. But I call you not just to be aware of it, but to live in awe. Live in awe of the birth of the King. And here as I read Matthew's account of the introduction to us of Christ the King. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. 
And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Please join me in your hearts as I ask God's help as we understand, as we study his word together. Our Father in heaven, we do ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that we might behold with wonder your work in history, your work in the birth of King Jesus. Lord, would you be pleased to open my mouth that I would speak truth and open our ears that we would hear you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Live in awe of the birth of the King. Four exhortations and a question that I'd like to present you with in the context of living in awe of the birth of the King. The first exhortation, and I believe the genealogy calls us to that, is to believe God's promises. Believe God's promises. Promises that are confirmed in this genealogy. We might, in our Bible reading, we might say, this is a, this is a long list of hard names. Maybe we'll just paraphrase or summarize or skip it. And yet in this long list of a few hard names, I probably mispronounced one or two of them, there's a reminder that the promises are confirmed in the genealogy of Christ. For from the beginning, we were told that this promised Messiah would be the seed of Abraham. He would be the seed of Judah. He would be the son of David. And Jews who lived at the time of Jesus' life on this earth would have easily and happily disqualified Jesus from any claims to be the Messiah if they could have negated his ancestry. But they couldn't, and they didn't. Further promises confirmed all nations would be blessed in Abraham, and it's through the promised Messiah that that blessing would come. And so we have here, as Matthew gives us this genealogy in a 14 by 14 by 14 grouping, we have the life of Abraham, and from Abraham to David, great hopefulness, great increase in the people of God. And we have the promise that David's descendant would reign forever, for God told David that his son would have an eternal throne. And yet from David to Babylon, as we read it here and as we read the Old Testament accounts, there's decline and division and disarray and destruction, but God would not destroy His people forever. And so we have the return from captivity, and from Babylon to Christ, there's some hope, 
yet it was a dark and a quiet period. And if you this morning are given to doubt, if it seems to you that God is not keeping His promises, remember this genealogy. Remember this account of the line of Christ. And remember its context. For there had been a famine in the land. A famine not of food, but of hearing the word of God. And there had been 400 years of silence because before God spoke again through the gospel writers. 400 years of silence. 1623. That was a fairly long time ago. Now, some of you students could probably tell me something significant that happened in 1623. But that was a long time of silence. And then God spoke. And in this genealogy, a genealogy that was preserved even through the exile and after the exile, a genealogy that accounted for promises of God that had been made thousands of years earlier, we were reminded that God keeps His promises. Matthew Henry put it this way, he said, Delays of promised mercies, though they exercise our patience, do not weaken God's promise. I suspect all of you fathers have made a promise to your children. I promise that on such and such a time, we're going to do such and such a thing. And I suspect, if I were a betting man, I could bet that you failed to keep some of those promises. God has never failed to keep His promise. And so if you at times are given a doubt, remember this genealogy and remember that the promises of God are certain. And that reality should cause the ungodly to fear, but the godly to rest. God is not a man that He should lie nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not make it good? And so as you live in awe of the birth of the king, believe God's promises. Secondly, the second exhortation is identify yourself as a sinner needing saved. Identify yourself as a sinner needing saved. Now I've got to acknowledge You'll see perhaps at the end why I used identify instead of acknowledge or something like that. I needed the I for my outline. But there's a lot of talk and nonsense with identify as in these days. But identity is not who you'd like to be or who you think you are. It's who you actually are. And so when I call you to identify yourself as a sinner who needs saved, I'm telling you that's who you are and that's who I am. Please don't take it as an insult. I'm not insulting you. I'm merely stating the truth. And we see in this genealogy that Christ was descended from sinners like these in order that He could save sinners like you and me. Christ was descended from sinners like these in order that He could save sinners like you. This genealogy begins, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ. Jesus the meaning of the word we'll look at in more detail this evening. Jehovah will save. Christ, the Messiah, the one anointed to save His people. And our Westminster Larger Catechism says that the grace of God is shown in the second covenant by His freely providing and offering to sinners a mediator and life and salvation by Him. 
And then it goes on to say, the only mediator of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, of one substance and equal with the Father, who when the time had fully came, come, became man. And so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Christ was descended from sinners like these so that he could save sinners like you. Another thing this genealogy assures us is that family position and history does not guarantee God's grace. We see here a list of names. Many of them are brothers who are not the firstborn. The pattern in Old Testament history was that to the firstborn went the spoils, if you will. But we have a number of non-firstborn that their family position the family position of the firstborn did not guarantee God's grace. You have Isaac and Jacob and Judah and Solomon. So don't despise your birth position and your family history, but don't glory in it either. I think there's a beauty of the family connections in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. And I think there's a beauty in the family connections in Springs Reformed Church in Colorado Springs. But don't glory in that connection, nor despise it. We have in this list godly fathers who had covenant-breaking sons. David's grandson, Rehoboam. Jehoshaphat's son, Joram. Hezekiah's son, Manasseh. I don't know how many times in my small, <laughs> my small brain I've read about Hezekiah and Manasseh and Hezekiah being given 15 extra years of life, and Manasseh being born in those 15 years. And I thought, God, maybe you should have not given Hezekiah those 15 years. But it is even through unrighteous Manasseh that God preserved the line of Christ to the king. And so if you have covenant-breaking sons and daughters, pray for them. Pray that God would keep his promises and that he would restore them. But know that family position and history does not guarantee God's grace. And you who are children in this congregation, don't for a minute think, because my parents are Christians, because I was baptized, because I've come to church all of my life, that somehow that's enough. One of the promises you parents make for your children and children your parents made for you is that they would acquaint you with your lost condition, your need for a Savior, and they would call you to repent and believe this good news. So family position and history doesn't guarantee God's grace, but we also see from this genealogy that atrocious sins do not disqualify from God's grace. Atrocious sins do not disqualify from God's grace. Abraham gave his wife to another man to save his own skin. He committed adultery in his own attempt to bear the promised child. David, of course, committed adultery and murder. And Matthew emphasizes that. Notice in verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, not by Bathsheba. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. An adulterous relationship and a man that he put to death so that he could take his wife for himself. But those who asked forgiveness even for atrocious sins, received it. 
And so you and I can ask forgiveness. And we may think, well, I've never murdered or committed adultery, and I hope that you haven't. But Jesus reminds us that we can commit adultery in our heart. We can commit murder by being angry at our brother. Those who commit atrocious sins are not disqualified from God's grace. Repent and believe. Come to Christ and ask for His mercy on you, a sinner. And if you have done that, rejoice in that mercy. The the third exhortation that I would give you from this text is remember Joseph, a righteous man. Remember Joseph, a righteous man. You know the story. But again, don't let your familiarity with a story cause you to miss the seriousness of what's taking place. It's a love story. We all like love stories. Well, our wives like it more than we do, probably. Uh, We have a plaque in our bathroom that says, "I, I love every love story, but mine is my favorite. And I think that may be true for all of us. But here we have a love story. A young man who loved a girl. She probably just a teenager. And he's gone to prepare a place for her. And he probably is building it himself. And he can't wait for the time that he will come, perhaps like a thief in the night, perhaps for a public ceremony. He desires to take him to to himself so that where he is, she may be also. And she's gone away to visit her elderly cousin who way beyond the years is expecting a child. And Mary comes back and she, it is revealed, is pregnant. His beloved, his betrothed, his betrayer. See, betrothal is not like our modern-day engagement. It was considered legally binding. Betrothed were referenced as husband and wife, though they didn't live together. They didn't consummate their marriage relationship until the marriage ceremony. In the Old Testament, sexual relations with a woman who was not betrothed, the requirement was to marry her and pay the bride price. But sexual relations with a woman who was betrothed was considered adultery and carried the death penalty. Mary... My beloved, we might imagine Joseph saying, why, why? And I wonder, did she ever tell him? Or did she endure his disappointment, his disapproval, his dismay in silence? And he wondered, what can I do? What will I do? What should I do? And as you remember this, the question comes, are you, like Joseph, a righteous man or a righteous woman? Joseph was righteous. He was just. He wanted to follow the law of God. He knew that for a woman who was betrothed to become pregnant by another man was against God's law. And yet he was gracious. He was unwilling to disgrace Mary publicly, we're told. And so he intended to put her away privately but he was also obedient. He was obedient to God. He followed an extraordinary direction that was given to him in an extraordinary way. Matthew Henry, again to quote him, says, extraordinary direction like this we are not to expect, but we do have clear direction from God how he calls us to obey him. And so are you righteous? Are you gracious? Are you obedient? As I was reflecting on this yesterday, 
I thought it sounds a bit like do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Three exhortations that I was charged with as your pastor on Friday night. And so I exhort you to remember Joseph, a righteous man. And the fourth exhortation I give you from our text before us is to trust the Bible's account of the supernatural. Trust the Bible's account of the supernatural. Joseph heard an unbelievable story in an unbelievable way, and we might be inclined to say, that's just unbelievable. But it's not believable because it's given to us in the truth in the Word of God. We're told that while Joseph was considering this, considering his plan to put Mary away, to divorce her privately, probably went to sleep with it on his mind, probably tossing and turning in bed. And he has a dream. And he sees an angel, a messenger of God, who tells him what's going on, who gives him insight that perhaps Mary hadn't told him. She knew that she would, be, that she would conceive a child without uh, a man being the father. But Joseph was told this unbelievable account. And you and I must believe the Bible when it speaks of the supernatural. Maybe you're familiar with the so-called Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson applauded the morals of Jesus as the highest moral standard he had ever come across. But he disbelieved the supernatural. And so he made, he didn't call it a Bible. His, his title of this 84-page book, you can, you can read it uh, on the Smithsonian's account, a digitized version of it. He called it The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, extracted textually from the Gospels in Greek, Latin, French, and English. I've read the English. I can't testify to the Greek and the Latin and the French. But in this, he cut out all the supernatural. He cut out all the miracles but he put the, the moral teaching of Christ. But Christ with only morality is not the Jesus who is king, the Jesus who was born. The last words of the so-called Jefferson Bible are these. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man laid. There laid they Jesus and rolled a great stone to, do, to the door of the sepulcher and departed. I don't know about you, but I find that so sad. And the reality is that if that is where the story of Christ ended, then what are we doing here? We of all people are to be most pitied. We are indeed, if that is the, all there is about Christ, we are foolish to believe. But Jesus without the supernatural is not Jesus at all. And so even though there is an interest in the supernatural in our day and age, I, I googled supernatural, the first 12 pages were about a TV series that I didn't even know existed. Maybe some of you are more hip than I am and know something about it. But without foundation, the view today of the supernatural is without foundation. Jesus' supernatural virgin birth is a wonder, a mystery, but is built on the foundation of the infallible Word of God. Jesus the Christ was conceived with no human father. And we know, of course, that that's impossible, don't we? No, we don't. 
For what is impossible with man is possible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. J. Gresham Machen, a pastor uh, of years gone by, some of you would know of his name, wrote a 400-page defense of the virgin birth. Let me read to you his defense. No, let me read to you <laughs> one sentence that he spoke that I think summarizes his 400 pages. If the Bible is, is regarded as, as being wrong in what it says about the birth of Christ, then obviously the authority of the Bible in any high sense is gone. If we cannot trust the biblical account of the virgin birth of Christ, then the Bible holds no authority over us. If the claims that the Bible makes are false claims, then it's a false book. But they're true claims, and it's a true book. And so we see the significance of the virgin birth, a reminder of the supernatural work of God saving people, men who are born not of the will of man, but by the will of God. It reminds us that salvation is fully a gift of grace. It's in Christ that God makes us accepted. It reminds us of the power and sovereignty over, of God over nature. Some of you, like me, were praying fairly fervently that the snow would hold off on Friday. And yet every time that I prayed it, I was reminded that God controls the storehouse of the snow. And if He wants to open the storehouse, He will open it when He will. And in the Lord's kindness, the snow didn't fall to prevent us from getting to the church. It just might have prevented us or made it difficult for us to get home on Friday night. But God is supernatural. He is, power, he is powerfully sovereign over nature. And it reminds us of the uniqueness of Christ. He is not a mere man, though He was fully man, and yet in a mysterious way at the same time fully God a way that we can't understand any more than we can understand how Mary could become pregnant by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. But notice the evidence here before us. Verse 18, before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Again in verse 20, this child was from the Holy Spirit. The virgin with child prophecy from Isaiah 7 that's quoted here, the reminder that this baby would be Emmanuel. God with us. He knew her not, though they were legally married in their betrothal. He knew her not, in verse 25, until she gave birth. The virgin birth is clear, but it's not overstated, and it's not rationally explained. So if you want me to explain how it is that it happened, I cannot tell you, but I can tell you on the authority of the Word of God that Jesus was born without a human father, was conceived without a human father. And so I've given you four exhortations. Believe God's promises. Identify yourself as a sinner needing saved. Remember Joseph, a righteous man, and trust the Bible's account of the supernatural. And I end with this question. Has Jesus saved you from your sins? Has Jesus saved you from your sins? You see, the birth of this king is far more than an amazing birth. There are a number of amazing births in, in, in the Scripture and in history. <laughs> the most amazing birth in my experience was our firstborn son. Not that the others were insignificant, but I had never before 
seen and held the one who came from me and my wife. But Jesus' birth was far more than amazing birth. And it was also far, even far more than a miraculous birth. There are a number of miraculous births in the scripture. You see, this king is the savior. This king is the only savior. And so as you live in awe of the birth of the king, believe God's promises. Remember, identify yourself as a sinner needing to be saved. Remember Joseph, a righteous man. Trust the Bible's account of the supernatural. And then answer the question, has Jesus saved me from my sins? Join with me in prayer. And may it be that you can all say yes. Father in heaven, I do pray fervently that every person in this room would be able to say, Jesus has saved me from my sins. And that together, not merely at this time of year when the birth of Christ is at least on the lips of our culture, but that we would constantly, always live in awe of the birth of the King. That we would proclaim this one who was born, who lived, who died, who was raised from the dead and ascended to your very right hand, all so that we could be saved. May we proclaim him to a world around us. May it be that some that we know, perhaps family members or friends, who would give some sort of lip service to the birth of Jesus at this time of year, might they come to know him in the saving way that we know him? And might we indeed live in awe of the birth of this king? We ask in his name, the Lord Jesus, amen.